Welcome to What on Earth, an AI group podcast unpacking the key issues of the minerals, energy and supply chain sections of the transitioning economy. Yes, indeed. This is What on Earth, the podcast asking the big question, what on earth is going on as Australia and the world transitions to a post-carbon world? We look at what is going on under the earth, above the earth and around the world as Australia transitions to the post-carbon net zero emissions economy. We look at the, the issues from uh, an industry and business owner's perspective. We try to provide you with strategic and business insights into the big issues. And there's always lots of big issues to unpack. With me, I'm James Scotland. With me each uh, month are my two amigos. Firstly, Tenet Reid, the Head of Environment and Energy from the Australian Industry Group. Hello, Tenet. G'day. And Paul Hudson, the Chief, what do you call yourself these days, the Chief Advisor at Paul Hudson Advisory. Hello, Paul. Hi, James. Uh, you can call me whatever you like. <laughs> um, and good to be with you again. It certainly is good to have, have you guys. How you been? Let's catch up. What's been happening uh, with you, Tenet? Uh, there's been quite a lot going on. We are in the midst of uh, a sustained, it's not a flurry, it's a, a sustained cavalcade of Australian energy and climate policy. Uh, and so we've seen, uh, like I've been beavering away on the uh, mandatory gas code of conduct. Uh, there's been a lot of work around the... Um, the finalisation of the um, implementation of the safeguard mechanism. Uh, there is uh, increasing manoeuvring around emissions targets uh, for 2035 um, in uh, for the, the national level and uh, in, in the states. Uh, and a, a little thing called CBAM is uh, is on on our horizon. Carbon border adjustment mechanism, not. Not one done to Australia, but maybe one done by Australia, uh, which will take a lot of work and a lot of a lot of thinking. So uh, I'm in hog heaven right now. I think that's a really good point. Uh, we often don't realise how much work is being done, what you could, could call behind the scenes. There's a lot going on underneath the water wall at the moment. Everything else is the focus. Uh, for the general public. So well, let's talk about some of the things. I guess that's the whole point of this podcast is to pick up the things going on behind the scenes. How about you, Paul? What have you been up to? Um, I've probably had uh, a quiet month, I think, James, which has been really nice to sort of uh, sit and reflect and, and think about what's happening. Um, we're, we're sort of in a, not a hiatus, but we're just waiting on the shortlisting for the Scaling Green Hydrogen CRC. Um, been uh, uh, attending a few events um, and uh, conferences and having some coffees and, and really just observing what's going on um, across uh, like the energy transition. Um, and yeah, there's a lot going on as, as uh, Tennant has mentioned, but there's also, I think, a sense that some of the bigger things are yet to come or there's or action on the ground is perhaps not moving quite so quickly. So maybe we can explore some of that today. For those of you who don't know uh, Paul, and I know that many on this uh, uh, this podcast do know Paul, uh, I was walking through Brisbane a little while ago. Well, might have been a while ago, probably before COVID. Walking through Brisbane, went past a very nice little coffee shop underneath a tree, and I looked in and there was Paul sitting uh, al fresco with, uh, with a, a, another person having a, having a coffee. And I thought, well, that's Paul Hudson in, in one photo, just right there. Coffee and a deep conversation. I was uh, I went out to Roma for Easter. Um, Roma is in Western Queensland in the arid zone, so I uh, went out to the country to, to where my uh, family have some property. And on the way back, we uh, we came past a really big wind farm, and some people in my car said, "There's sun and there's wind." But the blades aren't turning. We couldn't see one of probably a couple of hundred that were that were turning. Is is that common? And do you know why? Um, so uh, there may be a, a few reasons, uh, including that uh, a uh, a farm may be um, down for maintenance. There are um, there are breaks uh, on the. Um, uh, on the turbines, and uh, when they uh, need some work done, um, you you want to stop them. Uh, so, uh, 
Uh, it could be that. could be that they were down because there's a problem with the, um, the transmission line connecting them and uh, for, for safety reasons, uh, they're not operating. Um, yeah, it's, it's something that um, can happen for any number of reasons. Yeah. But they, are, they do spin. I mean, the ones I've seen in Spain and in Europe spin like crazy. So it, it, when they asked me, I was like, I don't know, I'm just probably not turned on. <laughs> I don't know. But it must have been the answer. Now, in our last podcast, we, uh, we spoke briefly about nuclear and we did get a comment from uh, a mate of mine, Rick, in Perth, who said, picked up what we were talking about and said, perhaps Australia is just not big enough electrical market to, to um, qualify for a nuclear investment and that they saw solar and wind farm making more sense considering how much solar and wind we have. Uh, they asked if that's what we were saying, that it's just our market's not big enough to justify uh, large-scale nuclear electricity. Well, I think you could do it for export though, right? So, um, and even into fuels. So I saw the, um, I think it was the chair of Emirates Airlines was in Australia, I think last month and uh, uh, made the suggestion that was reported in the media that uh, that Australia could have a series of nuclear power stations that were actually producing a, uh, a, a sustainable fuel, uh, a renewable fuel. Um, mm. So, uh, so yes, yeah, certainly for domestic purposes, but you know we we have a an energy footprint uh, much much larger than that. So on nuclear, uh, we probably need to make a distinction between conventional nuclear power plants and small modular reactors. Conventional plants are typically constructed uh, in multi gigawatt scale, and yes. Australia is not a very large market uh, in which to take that kind of plunge on a single project. Um, the small modular reactors, uh, different designs that are that are in the works, uh, sort of anything from uh, a few hundred megawatts uh, down to uh, tens of megawatts, and in theory, like Australia is as viable a place to do something of that scale as anywhere else. Uh, I, I think the, the problems are, uh, well, it's illegal, is, is one major problem for uh, any would-be developer. Um, but also that uh, the competing options uh, don't make an unsubsidised nuclear plant viable. Uh, like mm. even if the fondest hopes of uh, small modular reactor advocates were realised and the generation cost was less than a $100 a megawatt hour, uh, which is, is far from clear that that will be the case. It could be, but uh, far from clear. Uh, in the absence of some policy signal, uh, that uh, that values specifically what uh, nuclear is doing uh, in terms of clean output, uh, it would be having as much difficulty competing and and uh, getting a good price for its output all the time because it wants physically and financially to run all the time. Uh, it would have the same difficulties that coal generators are mm. having versus the influx of variable renewables, which have a zero short-run marginal cost of operation and are associated increasingly with periods when uh, energy prices go very, very low because there's so much renewable energy sloshing around the system. So you've got a, a multiple problems standing in the way of a nuclear industry, nuclear energy for power industry in Australia. Um, they may not be uh, problems forever, uh, but they're pretty big problems right now. And so I think it's it's most likely that uh, if we do ever go down a nuclear path, it will be on the basis of a lot of experience elsewhere that proves up or doesn't uh, the, uh, the, the price and easier construction and modularity uh, objectives that the small modular people are pursuing. So 
one to grow on. Yeah, I, I, that's great. And thank you, because I think we often hear the comment, why doesn't Australia have nuclear you know, energy on you? It's, it's like, it's so obvious. Uh, and yet when you dig into it, it's not obvious. The, the case has still not been made conclusively as to which way to go. Did you have a comment, Paul, or are you okay to move on? Look, I think there's a... I think it goes to the heart of uh, an issue. I was I was chatting with someone yesterday. We weren't having coffee actually; it was online. Um, but uh, they made a comment around um, the manufacturing opportunity, and they said, "Yes, but we've heard that it's going to take it would take three to five years to build the supply chain and skills and capability." And it's kind of like, well, three to five years is nothing, right? And and if you can start now, then you'd get on with it. Um, and so I think part of the challenge, yes, one is the cost against alternatives. Um, but people keep saying with nuclear, well, it's going to take 10 to 15 years, et cetera, et cetera. We go, well, yeah. actually, we're going to need energy for hundreds, if not thousands of years, right? So, um, and, and the energy transition, if we had like a 30-year plan, um, you know, 27 years, let's say, to get to net, net zero by 2050, um, We've got time to do some of these things. We've got coal-fired power stations and gas-fired power stations that aren't going to be uh, that are projected to be decommissioned in the late twenty thirties into the early twenty forties potentially. Um, you know, so if we if we expand, I think our horizons a little bit and not try to do everything in the next year or the next two or three years, um, we might make some more strategic decisions about what, what we're actually going to do. I think there's a lot of really near term decisions which actually then make the longer term harder uh, because we're not we're not we're not looking after both the short term and the long term you made the point to me and, and uh, others at many times that we went from a standing start to world leader in lng in just over 20 years uh we can 20 years is, is not isn't sort of like a nothing time frame absolutely absolutely and you know if someone wanted to do nuclear i say just get on with it right um, and say it's going to replace mm. baseload in the coal industry and, and be done with it. Um, but it, but it does have other issues such as cost and, and all, you know, other alternatives. But, uh, but we, uh, we end up losing decades because we don't want to do the work that's actually going to require us to do work for maybe a decade or two. And by the time we get there, it's, it's too late, right? So we've got, <laughs> we've got to kind of build, build for the future. I had a um a delightful boss years ago who uh was a father a young father at the same time and his call to action was always poo or get off the potty. <laughs> and you're saying the same thing, I guess. Let's move on. Uh at the last episode we talked about the National Reconstruction Fund. Uh, and the fact that the devil would be in the detail, uh, the announcements were made, uh and uh, both of you suggested that it's a good idea, but we needed to see detail. Have we seen any detail? Uh, I think uh, the devil and the detail remain behind closed doors uh, and I don't know what relationship they have to the potty, but uh, <laughs> we, we haven't seen the output yet. So, yeah, they need to do the same, eh? Nothing yet. I'm not, I'm not even quite sure what the implementation plan looks like um, in terms of, you know, is it consultation? Are there going to be draft guidelines? Is it going to be a few key people? Is it going to be public? Um, and how that's going to work. And uh, the government's just about to tip over its one-year anniversary. Uh, we know that uh, elections are within three. Um, so, you know, some of the things we talked about on the last podcast around timing, not sus suspecting they should have it, you know, they should have had it stood up by now. Um, but I haven't heard anything um, over the last, you know, month. So, um, yeah, hopefully we, we're here soon. And maybe, maybe there was some stuff around the budget timing as well that will will bring that to uh to bear but hopefully there's lots of work happening behind the scenes and hopefully it's it's uh it's well thought through and um yeah logical the implementation is like a pathway and and there has been some pathways discussed by government uh, i'm referring to obliquely the uh pathway to net zero yep. tenant what's going on there uh they got some we, we had some uh, announcements about that recently yeah. Also, for in terms of official pathways, uh, work continues in the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet. They've got a a task force that is uh, trying to assemble a uh, a more convincing 
national plan towards net zero. Uh, But beyond government, there's a lot of people trying to chart that course. And we saw recently the final results from a a very major modelling exercise, the Net Zero Australia project with uh, the University of Melbourne, University of Queensland uh, and others partnering with Princeton uh, in the United States to do a local version of uh, the modelling work for Net Zero America, uh, which has been quite an influential exercise over there. So these results look at what would be needed for a series of different scenarios where Australia achieves net zero emissions with differing assumptions between them about um, do we have uh, a free hand to build renewables in all the places that make sense or are there major constraints on deployment of renewables? Uh, is there um, greater progress on energy efficiency and energy performance and the reduction of energy demand? Um, and also variations in export demand, the nature of that demand, because this modelling exercise is looking at not just what it would take to decarbonise Australia's domestic activity, but to uh, decarbonise the energy equivalent of the exports that we have today of coal and gas. Uh, and that's big. So uh, the, the, the main things to take away from the Net Zero Australia, it's, it's not a crystal ball. It's not a, a prediction of what will happen, but it's a very interesting exploration of what it could take with existing technology for this goal to be achieved. And the exports piece of it is so much larger than uh, the challenge of decarbonising our domestic activities. Uh, the, uh, The scenarios broadly involved the deployment of about three terawatts of renewable generation uh, to, um, to achieve decarbonisation. And I, I don't know if anybody has an intuitive sense of what a terawatt is versus a bar of soap, but this is many multiples of, uh, it's more than 20 times our current uh, electricity generation capacity uh, in, in the whole of Australia. It's big. It's very, very big. And uh, so... Everything involved in doing that, the skills involved, the supply chains, managing access to land and building and maintaining social license. Uh, The the exercise produced some really interesting maps of where might be viable to build infrastructure of this scale once you take away um, areas of high cultural sensitivity, areas of high agricultural value. Uh, areas of great environmental sensitivity, a very large proportion of the land that would be involved uh, is um, uh, subject to native title and traditional ownership and the the relationship of this development with um, Indigenous people and um, their uh, communities and um, land management councils and so forth. Like that is going to be absolutely crucial. So I thought this was a fascinating exercise. And just linking back to the chat we had about nuclear, uh, they did a sensitivity where uh, nuclear was not illegal and it didn't make a lot of difference. So they found that Mm. uh, nuclear would only get deployed with the assumptions that they were able to make. And always, of course, these things are the product of a bunch of assumptions that are always arguable. But uh, nuclear wouldn't get deployed in an Australian net zero pathway unless two things were true, uh, unless the capital costs for nuclear were uh, reduced by about 30% below their best estimate of what they actually would be. And uh, that the uh, deployment of renewables was heavily constrained by social license issues, lack of access to transmission, that sort of thing. And in that 
modeling scenario, there was some nuclear deployed. It wasn't like the dominant uh, source, but it was a significant amount. Now, all of those assumptions, you know, you, you could paint a different picture, but the Australian context is one where it is harder to project a, a, a large nuclear future. Doesn't make it impossible. Paul, did you have a comment? Just going to say, I think um, one of the things that's coming up more regularly now is we're sort of seeing the the pace of ambition and demand move is that big infrastructure piece. Um, I think we're starting to see it now, even with electric vehicles. Um, there's been a quite a considerable ramp up in supply of electric vehicles into the Australian marketplace this uh, calendar year so far. And we're starting to see more affordable options arriving. I think the MG4 and the BYD Dolphin um, and others, um, plus we're seeing the good car company and others, you know, bringing in secondhand electric vehicles at, at higher levels mm-hmm. as well. Um, and I remember seeing at Easter, you know, a whole bunch of uh, warnings about, you know, if you're taking a drive, then be, be prepared for queues at, you know, public EV charging stations and the like. And I think we're, you know, it's difficult in any kind of transition, any, you know, high growth uh, of any industry is actually how do you go from uh, keeping demand and supply, uh, uh, you know, in harmony. Um, and I think the electric vehicle side, the infrastructure, how we put that out, how we roll that out, the effect on the grid, uh, what's happening with vehicle to grid in terms of potentially using uh, uh, car batteries more flexibly in meeting electricity needs, et cetera, um, is probably something that's really quite important to see. And I think it links to the, the Net Zero Australia as well, which is a lot of the infrastructure, uh, the native title agreements, what's happening with the First Nations Clean Energy Strategy that the Australian government's doing, mm-hmm. um, what are the rules setting for things that may be off-grid or on-grid or partially on-grid, just as a in case of emergency break glass. Um, yeah, a lot of lot of those types of things. Uh, we sort of it, it becomes a sort of two steps forward, one step back. I suspect uh, as you move forward, but uh, but I, I think the infrastructure piece is a really important one because no private company wants to uh, pay for the the infrastructure, and so how that's done in a shared mm. way, how it's financed, how it's rolled out. Do we have the materials? Do we have the skills? How's it going to operate? Um, are the local communities? Uh, ready for it? Are they okay with it? Um, how are they benefiting um, potentially in terms of energy or jobs or other, you know, job revenue or uh, benefit sharing? Um, th- these are the things I think we're going to see more of as as it uh, as we move away from the debates about whether we should do anything at all. Uh, it'll be to actually how do we actually do this in a way that um, creates a shared benefit. Um, and uh, and gets a lot of that foundation work happening quicker. I'll just add one more thing about that uh, Net Zero Australia work, which is to, to all the excitement that we've had in Australia about our clean energy export opportunities in hydrogen or otherwise, that modelling exercise was uh, had the assumption of we have to decarbonise the same volume of energy exports uh, that we have today, and and that was done primarily through ammonia exports in the core scenarios. But they did a sensitivity where uh, what we exported was not ammonia, but energy intensive products uh, made in Australia. Rather than sending the the raw materials uh, overseas, we make we make green steel here, or at least green iron. Uh, we we make much more alumina uh, and. Um, Aluminium here. Uh, and what they found was that the investment needs and the, the, the total cost uh, was vastly lower. It was about half uh, in that scenario, that sensitivity, versus doing all the ammonia, uh, doing everything as ammonia exports. Uh, and uh, you could take that in two ways. You could take it as... Uh, Woohoo, we've got a fantastic opportunity in Australia to do more value add, to move a bit further up the the chain and and do more with our resources, and that will be cheaper for everybody. You could also, though, take it as a a more direct black eye to the energy exports vision that 
it's got some major economic questions about whether uh, clean energy is going to be exported and internationally traded in the same way that conventional energy has been, uh, or whether it's a much more open field for even mediocre uh domestic energy generation opportunities in places like Japan might still be better than importing your energy from somewhere else with these economics. So I think we should be excited about our potential, but also not get too cocky because we are we're not in any way guaranteed to have the same level of, uh, of, of energy exports in the future that we, we have had. We'll have to work for it. And even working may not be enough. And it's a big amount of money, isn't it, Tanner? Is it about two hundred billion Australian dollars a year that goes into coal and gas exports? Uh, it's a big part of our national accounts. Yeah. Um, uh, and how we replace that? And and uh, it's I think it's noteworthy. Um, Ross Garner, who uh, has established uh, the Superpower Institute, he's been a big proponent of this. Uh, boosting our green aluminium and green steel and doing more in Australia. Um, and I think he's- And he's got a big he's friend. Got, yeah, he's got Rod Sims, I think, has uh, joined him in that, who's the former yeah. head of the ACCC. Um, so, um, yeah, so I think there's, there's a push for that. And I think it, 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 it is a big economic question, which is actually looking at our income into the future as a country, uh, which then leads hopefully to tax revenue. That's another question. Um, but uh, how does it? How does it? You know, what what sort of country do we want to be? What do we want our economic prosperity and social prosperity and our environmental uh, performance to look like as a country? What sort of country do we want to be? And I think a lot of these things uh, should lead to discussions around sovereign manufacturing and doing more here. Um, and if it takes three to five years, or it, it requires. Uh, an up a surge in in uh, uh, skilled migration. If it includes more robotics, if it includes more investment in underlying capability, um, then let's get on and do it, um, and uh, and and set the course for for that future. I was listening to uh, and watching <laughs> your webinar uh, recent tenant. I think it's called the Climate and Energy Update yep. from the Australian Industry Group, uh, and uh, good. Web, um, good webinar, by the way. Uh, if anyone wants to see it, just head over to the AI Group. Sorry, we'll put the link in the show notes. Sure, or head over to the AI Group website. There, there we go. There's the there's the plug. Um, one of the comments in that in that uh, webinar was the fact that every every country has a different pathway to to post carbon. Don't they? Yeah. Uh, America uses a lot of uh, their gas domestically and has a small export. Factor, we have a large export factor and a small domestic use. If I uh, summarise it, and it sort of highlights this point that every every country is going to have to face it differently. Was that a, a correct assumption out of that out of that uh, webinar? Oh, I think I think you're right. And uh, there's all kinds of ways in which circumstances differ. Uh, the the nature of the uh, resource endowments they've got, the size of their domestic markets versus uh, export markets, the relative competitiveness of of different technologies in their own specific context. So yeah, one size will not fit all. But at the same time, there are global trends and uh, movements in technology costs that are driven by what the sum of what everybody is doing. All the deployment of wind and solar and batteries and electrolyzers will contribute to making those technologies cheaper for everybody over the long term. There can absolutely be supply chain crunches uh, in the short term, although it looks as if we're moving out of some of those crunches, at least for, uh, for lithium and uh, for wind and solar, which uh, should see a resumption of those, those cost reduction trends that uh, went into reverse gear in the last couple of years. Uh, with uh, a, a bunch of projects getting more expensive, they're going to re- return to uh, getting quite a lot cheaper. That plays out differently in every national context, but every context will be altered by those global trends. One of the big global trends is the, uh, what could you call it, the re- reawakening of China as it emerges from extended COVID lockdowns. Uh, if they If they ramp up as fast as people expect, there will be a massive demand uh, 
by that country and they'll change gas and uh, critical minerals and all sorts of different markets. Do you just go back to you, that, that, that webinar that I discussed? Uh, uh, just give us an update on where, where we are. I'm sure the business people listening to this would love to know what's going on with gas prices, gas supply, gas, yeah. gas, gas, gas. Let's start. <laughs> well, it's a gas, gas, gas. There you go. Uh, China is a, is a big swing factor here. Uh, because they are a, uh, a very big buyer of LNG uh, and natural gas, they uh, sort of when their demand was fairly weak um, in the last couple of years, and there's been this sense that they were going to uh, recover and, and start re-entering and buying a bunch of uncontracted gas. At, and, and drive uh, further tightness in that market that had been recovering from the, the Ukraine shock and, and see prices go higher again. Now, we haven't really seen that so far. Oh, and there's okay. two narratives for why we still may, and they're, they're sort of contradictory, but they get to the same answer. So if China has a great deal of success in um, recovering from zero COVID and there's a there's a boom in consumption, then people argue gas demand is going to go up and global markets will be tight. The op- opposite argument or opposite yet the same argument is if they don't have a resurgence of consumer activity uh, and the government feels the need to stimulate the economy in order to get the growth numbers to where they are politically mandated to be, they'll do the same thing they've done a billion times before, which is stick enormous amounts of uh, of money into boosting construction and infrastructure, uh, which will directly boost demand for a whole bunch of energy-intensive construction materials, and it will see gas prices uh, go up and international markets tight. So, like, whichever way things go, gas prices are going to get worse is is the sum of those two arguments. But, like, I don't know. Uh, they they might muddle through um, a consumption-led uh, recovery in, in China um, might not be that gas-intensive. Like, we're really... We're really uh, fumbling in the dark a bit, uh, but I think uh, it is plausible that global gas markets will be in a more orderly, more balanced place in two years, three years than uh, certainly than they are now. Uh, and uh, so that there's some light at the end of the tunnel for gas users. There's also some policy developments, which which we can talk about. All right, let's, let's get to those policy developments in a second. Uh, Paul, for a long time, people have been saying, some people have been saying, that the transition fuel, the, the fuel that we'll be using between moving away from, um, from coal and from oil to renewable, the transition will be gas. Is that proving to be the case? And uh, I guess LNG in particular. Um- I think it, I mean, almost to Tennant's point, you know, before, I mean, I think uh, it, the answer is kind of yes, no, and maybe. Yeah, I guess I'm asking just to sort of fatten it out from an from a economic development point of view rather than the, the policy and the, the real numbers. Well, you're saying as a fuel, so you're talking about kind of mobility or, I mean, the... the oh, energy, energy, I guess, the, 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 the transitional energy source. Uh, is that going to be gas in, 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 instead of... Well, there are look. I mean, yeah. I mean, gas gas generally is uh, less emissions than coal, but uh, there are issues with fugitive emissions, um, which are sometimes hard to uh, uh, to pinpoint actually what the the emission uh, the overall emission intensity of it is. Um, but certainly, it's been it's being used um, for things like um, actually uh, uh, long uh, large ships. Um, LNG is now being used, um, and partly that's to things like reduce sulphur um, out of uh, heavy marine uh, diesel. Um, so there are so gas has been used in a wide. It's been used in a wider uh, group of um, applications, perhaps than than before. And um, it it it's it's look. It's part of a toolkit of a whole range of things. Um, it's likely to be a transition because it's it's unless without very large levels of uh, carbon capture utilization and storage, 
that you're going to end up with a zero emission um, unless you're starting to look at things like biogas. And there are people looking at things like biogas and doing biomethane or doing uh, a green methane, if you like, uh, using renewables for electrolysis um, and then into uh, and then potentially putting that into the um, uh, the, the existing gas infrastructure. So there's there's still complexity around it, but it's not a it's not the perfect solution. But uh, in a time when we actually need more energy and we've got more energy insecurity, if you like, um, there, there's certainly an absolute role for gas in a lot of those applications. But um, it really depends on your time frame. If you're looking at it in the next five to ten years, probably more gas. If you're looking at ten to twenty, perhaps starting to plateau out beyond that perhaps a steepening decline of gas. Um, but there's still a lot of um, ifs, buts and maybes around the alternatives and how they can be done at scale um, and what the overall life cycle assessment of emissions looks like a lot as well um, because the, uh, the atmosphere and the earth don't really care too much about um, what the final point of emissions are. They're actually uh, the climate impacts are right across the, the, the supply chain. The existential threat. For what it's worth, the the International Energy Agency, which gets invoked a lot in arguments about gas, they say uh, that the uh, the golden age of gas uh, ends around twenty thirty. Uh, that there's there's a lot of usage and boom times this decade. There's demand for and need for additional LNG export. Uh, capacity globally to fill the hole left by Russia uh, in um, energy supplies in Europe, but that that golden age comes to an end, or the the golden parachute uh, runs out um, around twenty thirty, uh, and that uh, there's deep contractions expected um, by by twenty forty. Uh, that there's uh, a basis for uh, investment today in existing gas fields, and uh, that it's you can't reconcile uh, investment in in new uh, large new uh, fields or or, or, or deposits uh, with a one point five degree pathway. So you know they say a lot of things, uh, and out of all that, for any individual country, you can say either. Um, right, it's closing time. Um, we we need to find something else to do. Or there's a few hours, there's a few happy hours left, uh, and uh, let's let's uh, have a good time while we can. Um, and I, I think that argument's going to continue for a, a little while longer. The solution to the uh, Russian Ukraine energy crisis for Europe was to. Uh, Buy more LNG to buy to import more LNG, not to find alternative sources because it wasn't ready, was it? It just you know the, the infrastructure, etc. That we talked about before, just wasn't in place. Or am I simplifying that too much? I'd say um, their their immediate twenty twenty two solution was a combo of buy all the LNG they could from anywhere they could get it that wasn't Russia and a bit from Russia too. Uh, and do energy conservation, and that they reduced gas demand by uh, more than ten percent um, wow. in in Europe in twenty twenty two in ways that mostly in ways you wouldn't want to sustain for the longer term, like emergency reductions in demand. Um, but they do have a, a huge amount of investment going on in cutting into their underlying gas demand through electrification, through biogas, through hydrogen. Through renewables, um, some countries have extended the life of nuclear power plants. Uh, some countries, of course, brought coal power plants back into service um, to cut down on gas demand. Um, but that, they are heading very much in the replace natural gas with clean alternatives direction. But it's a there's a lot of alternatives. It's reinforces your point that there is an end date to all of this. There's an interesting historical. Analogy in uh, the Australian Merino fleece, you know the wool that we made in Australia, we on the back of the ship, but peaked in uh, eighteen ninety nine. This is just a weird fact, I know. Yeah. Peaked in eighteen ninety nine, and it was in the decline until basically it didn't exist anymore after about the nineteen forties. Except there was a huge peak between nineteen sixteen and nineteen eighteen. There was a huge demand for wool. 
which coincided with the need for greatcoats and blankets of World War Two, uh, World War One. Sorry, in the trenches. Yep. Short-sighted people said, "Oh, look at all the sales. You know, wool is back. It's yep. like LNG's back, but it's not. The overall trend is down. Is what I think you're you're saying, tenant. Yeah. Do you have a comment, Paul? Before we move on, I was just going to say, just you can't overestimate, I guess, the the challenge here, right? So the the we uh, fossil fuel usage right across the world um, underpins pretty much everything. Um, and so it's the scale of the change. So it's it's very difficult to do things bit by bit. It's pretty hard to do things while you're also keeping cars on the road and ships on the ocean and keeping the, the you know the proverbial lights on um, as well. So I think it's very difficult to um, to to take a really purist view of this and just kind of go, we just need. You know, we just need tomorrow to switch on all renewables. Um, there's a lot of invested capital, skills, yeah. technology, supply chains, production exploration, and everything that goes into this. And, and you really are turning around something which is absolutely massive. And 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 without a real sense of certainty, there's a lot of great modelling, um, but but that modelling gets superseded. Quite regularly, yes. Um, no one really can predict what this looks like, so it's it it, it is a massive challenge. Yeah, I think it's important that you know. In, this is a business podcast. We need to be agnostic to all of the uh, options to to keep them all on the table and, and see what the best way forward is for us as a business economy. Uh, we're going to talk about gas policy. Perhaps we'll leave that for another 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 time, just to finish up. Paul mentioned before electric vehicles. Uh, there's uh, there's some statistics out recently um, that uh, Australia now uh, new car sales in Australia. There are three point four percent of new cars in Australia are electric vehicles, um, which is a sixty five percent increase on last year. Uh, last year was probably still an anomaly because of COVID, but three point four percent and that is unusual because uh, globally. Uh, Individual markets are around fourteen percent of of um, of all vehicles being sold. The EVs we're at three point four percent, so our our sales are really low. And the reason for that is because uh, car manufacturers. One of the reasons is what these car manufacturers find it easy to send their uh, internal combustion engines here because we don't have what people are claiming the fuel efficiency standards. Is that right? Uh, is it is it is that a policy problem? Well, uh, the vehicle suppliers themselves say that uh, it is hard to prioritise Australia as a uh, a market for um, sending high efficiency internal combustion engine and electric vehicles to, because there is no uh, national policy driver of that. Um, most advanced economies do have fuel efficiency standards uh, and, and have had for many, many years. Uh, we currently don't, although that looks like it's about to change. Uh, the federal government opened consultation last week or recently on uh, implementation of a fuel efficiency standard. Uh, they hope to finalise the standard by the end of the year. When it would kick in is to be determined whether we would converge with the United States standards, which have gotten significantly tougher in the latest EPA proposals there, or with Europe, or with New Zealand, or who knows, do a thing of our own. Uh, that is all to be determined. Uh, and you could always imagine this going slower or faster, um, but the... Um, a big tool for changing that mix of what are the choices that uh, Australian vehicle buyers even have offered to them, let alone the choices that they make, um, that uh, policy driver is is not far off, it seems. Demand is strong, apparently. Um, the car dealers are saying that there is demand for electric vehicles. They just can't get the vehicles. Paul, you're always a, uh, one to advocate for the rules of the game to be clear, you know, to get this thing done. I, I imagine that you would like to see some clarity here in the fuel efficiency standard. Yeah, look, I think so. And I think um, we we need to have that conversation about what we can manufacture here in Australia as well, um, given the ramp up that we're going we're gonna to do. It's a shame we lost our, you know, um, uh, 
car manufacturing sector, but we still have a lot of capability in Australia to do some of this. And um, uh, maybe uh, maybe some discussions with some global automakers, uh, potentially even out of China, uh, which would be uh, given that's where a lot of the, uh, the the electric vehicles are coming from now, uh, to actually do some work here, whether it's some assembly work or it's some other other kind of work in Australia might be uh, uh, might be quite useful to kind of help do that. I'm, I'm, I've been reading reports that a lot of a lot of cars are stuck on ships or stuck at, at wharfs at the moment because we're actually having to clean all these cars coming in, um, and there's some challenges around biosecurity uh, of mm-hmm. cars, not the electric vehicles, but any vehicles. So, um, so a lot of them are not just uh, we're waiting 12 months, 18 months for a vehicle once ordered to come in, but sometimes it's taking months uh, because our cleaning schedule uh, isn't keeping up to speed either um, in terms of, uh, of, of washing these cars thoroughly to ensure that we're not uh, importing um, uh, sort of uh, castaway, uh, sorry, um, uh, stowaways um, with some sort of biosecurity challenge on them. So. And so doing more here, I think, would be uh, an important point as well. I'm sure that's something the federal government's looking at um, in terms of uh, electric vehicles and hydrogen fuel vehicles and other components and the like, and, and whether we can actually accelerate that by, by, by building some local capability. Yeah, this is one of my hobby horses. I mean, the, the electric vehicle is not a motor vehicle that's been changed over to a battery vehicle. It is a smart vehicle compared to a dumb vehicle. It is equivalent in, I heard it once described, I've said on this podcast before, it's the, the electric vehicle is to the motor vehicle what the smartphone is to the rotary phone. It is same purpose, but completely different. And from a business point of view, the running costs of electric vehicle are so much lower. They don't have all the all the consumables that you need to have. They don't have spark plugs and, and, and fuel injections and mufflers and all sorts of things. Uh, I think we'll, we'll keep an eye on, on this space and see. One last question to wrap up in the webinar that we spoke of, the climate and environment update. There was talk about the El Nino effect kicking in. Do you want to just anyone got any comments about the fact that this changes the energy demands around the world, possibly? Well, uh, so the the El Nino La Nina cycle, uh, the the oscillation uh, of uh, where there's an uh, upwelling of uh, of warm water and where there's a downwelling of cool water in the um, in the Pacific. It does have a huge impact on weather patterns and weather patterns have an impact on energy demand uh, and on supply too. Uh, when there was a tremendous uh, drought, the Millennium Drought um, in Australia uh, actually led to an electricity price surge because uh, of restrictions on the availability of water for cooling at some of our coal-fired power stations. We've seen a similar um, issue actually in Europe last year where uh, extreme temperatures and drought led to constraints on the output of France's nuclear fleet uh, because of um, inability to access enough cooling water. So, yeah, if indeed we are headed out of a couple of years of uh, pretty strong La Nina into uh, a high chance of an El Nino, uh, we're going to have hotter, drier conditions in much of Australia, uh, wetter conditions uh, in uh, parts of South America, uh, and we will see what impacts that has on, on global energy markets. But uh, I think we'll see a lot of impacts that we won't like from um, from more frequent extreme temperatures because, of course, we've got this oscillation superimposed on a long-term trend of higher temperatures. Uh, and so the, uh, uh, you still get plenty of variation, but the, the high point on the extremes is getting ever higher and, um, you know, very, uh, very unpleasant heat wave mm. uh, affecting uh, India at the moment. Uh, well, we, we could have some... We have a, a higher statistical chance. I'm not going to open uh, my crystal ball here, but we've got, certainly got a higher chance of very bad heat events in Australia, uh, as we inevitably do, whether it's this year or next year or soon, have uh, our next El Nino. 
And these have impact on your business. It's time to keep factor that into your planning, I, I think. Just be aware of it, uh, Paul. Yeah. Well, look, an El Nino um, will, you know, drive up the use of air conditioning and, and cooling in Australia and, and therefore energy consumption. But um, it was only a few years ago that we had, you know, t- uh, devastating bushfires in Australia and El Nino also increases the chances of, uh, of uh, extreme bushfires as well. And I think the ones three years ago, uh, just before the sort of uh, pandemic were, um, I think they, they, they had a significant impact actually, even on uh, without the, the human costs and the infrastructure costs, but the, uh, uh, the, uh, uh, the, the amount of global emissions, uh, carbon emissions. Uh, yeah. There was a blip uh, from the Australian bushfires of, uh, of Southeast Australia. So, um, so yeah, so hopefully, uh, uh, and it makes sense, right? After a, a big wet, um, you get a lot of, uh, you get a lot of growth. Um, and therefore, once everything dries out again, it becomes uh, uh, a lot of uh, feedstock for, uh, for, for bushfires. Let's finish there. Uh, without notice, Paul, uh, I'll give you the last say. You, you said you've spent the last month reflecting. How are you feeling? Are you feeling positive, frustrated? Are we on track for the transition? Uh, a, just a summary comment uh, without notice. Put you in the deep end. I don't think we're. I don't think we're keeping pace with what we need to do, um, and I think a lot of it's around time scale. Um, the lack of the lack of a real strategy, a lack of a real integrated plan. Um, you know, I, I, I commented to someone actually around the refresh of the national hydrogen strategy. Uh, what I'd love to see is actually uh, it, it morphed into a, a plan, which is really a plan for and, and beyond 2030. I think we need to be thinking 2040 at least, um, but not just around hydrogen, but actually around zero emission uh, electricity, fuels and chemicals. Um, and uh, and integrate into this whole uh, start integrating a lot of these things, not having a lot of siloed kind of policies and strategies, but also extending the time frame out and really getting on with the communicating communication with the public around what this means um, and what all the component parts are going to be and how they, those building blocks uh, are going to work and and how people are going to benefit and engage with them. Um, uh, we need to bring a lot of this. We need to bring you know that team Australia together a lot more. I think. Great place to finish. Uh, there are challenges and opportunities for business people ahead. The fundamental part is to understand the issues. Thank you for your insights. It's been fun. That brings us to the end of another. What on earth? We'll be back in a month to talk about the issues that are happening in the transitioning economy. Uh, I'm James Scotland. I'm here with Tenant Reed and Paul Hudson. And we'll talk again in one month. See you guys. See you soon. Thanks, James. Thanks, Janet.